I'm Alan Weitz with The Uncommon Truth, and The Uncommon Truth today is about contrarianism. Yes, that's right. My very first brand was as the contrarian. At the time, quality was the big deal. Quality circles, and lean, and quality approaches, and black belts about quality. And so I wrote a, an article about how quality pursuit is wrong. And that quality doesn't create anything. And that being lean isn't necessarily good. The myth of quality circles, I called it. And uh, after it was published by a, a, a periodical in Boston, you go back to the Frankenstein movies of the 30s and you found that the villages were marching up the hill with pitchforks and, and torches and every human resources person in the world was attacking this article. And the publisher said to me, listen, about the article. And I said, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to cause you harm. And he said, kid, write an article every month for me like that. I'll pay you 50 bucks. And I said, but they hated it. He said, they read it. And that taught me a lot. And what I'm telling you today about uncommon truth is that it's important, more than ever perhaps, to be a contrarian. I don't mean ornery. I don't mean curmudgeonly. Andy Rooney was a curmudgeon. I don't mean being a nihilist where you want everything destroyed. But I mean finding a reverse view. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, take a hackneyed phrase. Take a stale aphorism like, the customer is always right. You don't have to say the customer is never right, but you could say not every customer is right. Years ago, Ritz-Carlton, prior to Marriott buying it, had a policy where any employee could offer goods and services up to $2,500 in order to please an unhappy guest. And so, uh, somebody might get a free dinner or a free drink or a free night and this is the way of the hotel uh, providing that kind of service at the front line. We talk about what goes up must come down. Well, not so much. We've had a space station up there for a long time. We've got uh, vehicles traveling outside of our own solar system. We have uh, solar planes that can stay up, presumably, upon further development uh, forever. So what goes up doesn't have to come down. And that includes the stock market. You know, people said, well, it's due for a crash. It has to come down. It has corrections, but I think over the last year alone, it's gained thousands of points. Ready, aim, fire is silly. You know, it's an example of these things that we fire blindly. Ready, aim, fire. Actually, aim and fire is pretty good by themselves. Getting ready wastes a lot of time. When I ran track, you know, get ready, get set, go, they used to say, or fire the gun. Getting ready just built your nerves up. It made you crazy sort of walking around back there. You wanted to get in the blocks, you know, get set, and just hear the gun go off fast as you can. You know, 10 seconds later it was over, and you either won or you were congratulating the winner. And the same thing in business. Too many people are afraid to pull the trigger. They get ready, 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 but they never fire. And I know a lot of people who, if they had gone through with plans they've been talking about for the last year, would be a lot better off today. You know them, too. Some of them are you. Bring people to the food. That's what we've always done. You know, the Delmonico steak is named after uh, the, uh, the restaurant Delmonico's, which was the first public restaurant in New York. People used to eat at home. They didn't go to a common place to eat. It was unthought of, unseemly. 
But then they did. The wealthy people in New York went to this restaurant called Delmonico, and hence today we have a Delmonico steak. And that was the rule of of, um, culinary art until people started bringing food to the people instead of people to the food. And so you can drive through uh, a fast food restaurant and get your food, or you can have food delivered to your home. Meals on Wheels takes care of the elderly. You can get all kinds of food delivered to your home, depending upon the size of your city and the sophistication of the delivery services. So in terms of contrarianism, the challenge to the basic premise or the operating theory is key and not the actual intended action. In other words, we need sales training. So instead of arguing about what kind of sales training is needed, talk about why someone feels sales training is required in the first place. We need alignment. That's great these days, you know, alignment. I have no idea what the hell it means. It's like these speakers who get up and talk about authenticity when they're telling the same joke a hundred thousand times and still laughing at it and crying all the time at four and a half minutes into their program. Yet they're talking about authenticity. I also, by the way, have a hard time listening to speakers telling me to take control of my life when they weigh 400 pounds. But I digress. So what is alignment? Instead of saying, well, there are seven different ways to get alignment, say, what are you talking about? If you had alignment, how would the place look different? What's a future state with alignment as as compared to where you are today? There was a fellow who worked with me for quite some time in my coaching program. He's written a couple of um, very good books, maybe more, uh, and he's very successful. A seven-figure business, works with major companies. But he called me once and he told me, and this is a habit of many good people, they chase money. They chase money they don't need, and they take on business they shouldn't take. And so he was dealing with Fortune 1000 companies, let's say, and a law firm called him. And the law firm said, look, we think you'd be a great coach for our top attorney. She's our top producer, but everybody in the office complains about her. She's abrupt. She overrides people. She shouts them down. She thinks she's smarter than everyone else. And so we'd like her to get along better with people. And we've had a succession of coaches haven't worked. And he said to me, what do you think? It's $15,000, and I can do it over the course of a week, and I'm in town anyway. I said, you're crazy. She's exhibiting the behaviors that have made her a success. The basic premise here is wrong. In other words, the point isn't that she get along with her colleagues who don't produce as much. The point is she's bringing in seven figures to the law firm reliably, annually. Maybe other people better get along with her or emulate her behaviors in the courtroom. But she's going to eat you up and spit you out. He said, no, no, no. I can help her get along better with people and it'll be fine. Well, about a day or two after he got there, she complained to the partners that this guy was a waste of time. And if they didn't get him out of there, she was going to leave. And so he got booted out. The point is, the partners should have fired anybody who didn't get along with her. Their basic premise was wrong. So ask why and not how. If you think of decision-making as coming in a chain, in other words, I need transportation. My next decision is I think it'll be a car. My next decision is I think I'll lease the car instead of buying or renting or stealing it. My next decision is I want a sports car. My next decision is should it be uh, domestic or foreign and so forth and so on. That's a decision chain. And when you ask how to do things, you go down the chain. You become tactical. How will we do this? But if you ask why you're doing it, and that's this confrontation I'm talking about, you go up the chain and you become more strategic. Why are we even thinking about this? Maybe you should have a car and driver. 
So pushing back on a basic and especially false premise doesn't seem like contrarianism, but it is. The key is, don't try to please people, earn their respect. This PTP, propensity to please, is killing people I know. There's a difference between affection and respect. We're not in this business to have people like us. We're not in this business to gain external validation. We're in this business to use our internal validation to help others. We want to gain people's respect by offering them value. And there is value in being contrarian and pushing back on basic premises. If you want a lot of affection, get a dog. If that's insufficient, get two dogs. So don't focus on trying not to lose business. Because when you focus on not losing business, you become a yes person. And you're seeking to be loved and you want to be compatible. Focus on being who you are and opposing what seems silly or opposing what even seems reasonable if you can bring it it to a more interesting and provocative conclusion. There's a real need for contrarianism. Remember the segue? I mean, this guy had invented heart stints and all kinds of valuable and important and uh, useful mechanisms. And he thought the segue, he actually thought that, you know, he would sell 250000 the first year and that people would be using these in cities to get around. And, of course, he didn't sell 50000 in, in in their lifetime so far. Not a fifth of that. And it's used by people in warehouses uh, and it's used by some postal workers in huge facilities and it's used in, in warehouses by people who have to go a long distance. And I notice it's used by police on boardwalks during the summer on the Jersey Shore. But so what? You even see some Segway tours, like in Prague, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the guide and, and five people following on Segways, you know, with their helmets on, it, which was kind of preposterous because Prague is known to be a walking city. So there's a need for contrarianism. Somebody should have said the Segway won't work. And here's why it won't work, because people aren't going to use it. And here's why they're not going to use it. You know, uh, the, the feeling in this last election was that women minorities, and the working class, quote-unquote, blue-collar workers, would vote in large numbers for Hillary Clinton. They would come out and just smother the numbers for her. And she would take all those states where these big cities provide those kinds of groups. And of course, women did not come out in those numbers, particularly white women. And that was not misogyny. She's just, she, was, she had huge unpopular ratings among women. And minorities did not come out like they did for Obama's first term. They didn't even come out for him in the second term as strongly. And blue-collar workers were not interested in in what they considered to be failed promises from the Democrats. Now, this isn't a political statement. I'm just pointing out that the election shocked people because nobody pushed back and said, what is the validity behind these premises you have, which have almost become mythological? Remember when you can only distribute music through recording companies? The big stars like Taylor Swift have taken that in their own hands and distribute directly through electronic and digital media. There was a time when, you know, people said no one will watch ballroom dancing. It's a cult. And people will go to ballroom dances who themselves enjoy ballroom dancing and they'll watch these very elegant, staid competitions where people were announced almost like a horse show, you know. And then they had this show called Dancing with the Stars or something in England. And they took it to the head of TV production at ABC in Los Angeles, who was a woman, and she said, it would never work here. I I won't even think about it. I won't discuss it. And they begged her, just watch one show. 
And she finally relented, and she watched one show. And now Dancing with the Stars in the U.S. is one of the most highly rated reality shows on TV. It's in its 20 or 21st season. They run two seasons a year. And it's rapidly watched, including by yours truly, because it's really pretty funny. And it's fascinating. So people won't watch a, a professional dance show. Let me be contrarian and tell, me, tell you that they'll flock to one. You know, there are still newspapers today. The computer has not done away with newspapers. There are still hard copy books. There are still checks. There's still paper in offices. Remember the paperless office? I don't know about you. My computer and the transactions I do produce a huge ream of paper that has to be printed out on my printer. There's still broadcast TV. Cable hasn't done away with it. In fact, there's still AM radio, which is serving a real purpose. And for that matter, snail mail is still here. I've got a pile on my desk. So the question wasn't, when will they disappear? That was the stupid question. A checklist society, a paperless society. Digital books will replace hard copy books. By the way, the last time I looked in 2016, the biggest decline in book sales was among e-books, electronic books. They were down 4%. Hard copy books were up. So the stupid question is, when will they disappear? But the intelligent question is, what's their future role? And that's a different kind of question. It's a contrarian question. So we don't live in an on-off switch world. We live in a, a rheostat world. And so there might not be as many hard copy books, but there will still be a lot of hard copy books. What's their role in the future? Why would people print them? Who would buy them? So the paperless office never came to pass, neither did the, neither did the checklist society. The question has to be different. It has to be more contrarian. And we now have home banking, you know, and we have homeschooling. I talked about food coming to the consumer. Education has come to the consumer. Homeschooling has proved to be very popular. Non-traditional degrees of high quality, very popular. Digital course, courses, very popular. So education is coming to the user and consumer, and so will other things, like healthcare. We'll be able, through telehealth, to show on our iPhone a mole or a rash or uh, a, a, an, allerg an allergic reaction and a doctor somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world will advise us on what to do and whether we need to see a physician in person or buy a certain over-the-counter medicine or perhaps he or she will actually send a prescription to our local pharmacy. Healthcare is coming home. Hospitals are expensive. And by the way, last year something like 40% of the deaths that occurred in hospitals were iatrogenic. Iatrogenic means they were caused by the hospital. Think about that. So if you want to be contrarian, folks, ask the reverse question. Not how do we sell this, but how will they buy this? Don't accept givens and myths. You know, the early bird gets the worm, but the early worm gets eaten. So don't accept the traditional conventional wisdom. It's not conventional, it's not really wise. Otherwise, it's fine. Don't seek to please. Make an impression. Make a dent. Make a chink in the armor. Earn respect. And don't be afraid to fail. There is no such thing as playing it safe. We're not here to stick our toe in the water. We're here to make waves. For my live streaming audience here, on September 21 and 22, I'm running a special life-storming session in New York. I'm limiting it to 12 people. 
We're going to see the best plays, eat in the best restaurants, talk about the best business techniques, all in luxurious settings, all included, all meals included, and ground transportation included. You just have to pay to get there. The fee is going to be $15,000, but if you mention that you're a member of my live streaming, uh, my live streaming series, I'll take $3,000 off. Only 12 people. We already have three. If you want to sign up, alan at summitconsulting.com or ask whatever questions you have. Thanks for being with me today.